Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Third Act. Today, I talk with Marcella Johnson, founder of The Comfort Cub. Marcella's story is a bit different than my usual guests in that she didn't follow the path of school, big career, and then pre-tiring into her passion project. Rather, her third act was literally born the day her fourth child, George, was born in 1999. George was born with a rare disease and died the day he was born. Marcella left the hospital the next day without a baby in her arms and over the course of the next few weeks developed symptoms similar to a heart attack, achy arms and heart, but nothing a doctor could diagnose. A few weeks after George's death, she picked up a planter and instantly felt better having that weight in her arms. She went on to learn that moms all over the world were substituting weighted objects to ease the ache created by lack of a baby. With this insight, she created a teddy bear, now known as the Comfort Cub, which she began to distribute to hospice centers and hospitals throughout her hometown of San Diego. Today, the Comfort Cub is a nonprofit organization that donates thousands of Comfort Cubs to moms all over, as well as to anyone seeking the therapeutic comfort. Join me as I talk to Marcella about her third and likely forever act to honor the legacy of her son, George. Marcella, hello, and welcome to Third Act. Where do I find you today? You find me today at my home office in San Diego, California, and that actually is my kitchen table. Great, great. So we were introduced through a mutual friend in San Diego, a good friend of both of ours, who's in awe of of you, I should say, and of the people that you've been able to help with the Comfort Cove. So I can't wait to tell your story. But, you know, you and I talked a few weeks ago about your story, and I realized that we kind of started right away with the Comfort Cove, but I didn't get into anything about your first or second act. So we need to start with a couple of quick background questions. So, so where'd you go to college and what did you end up doing coming out of school? Okay. So I went to UC Santa Barbara. Go Gauchos. Are you born and raised San Diegan? No, I'm from Massachusetts originally. And I moved out here when I was 12 years old. I moved to San Diego. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I feel like- God's country. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's beautiful. But I, I have to tell you, I do feel like my roots are back East for sure. I totally relate to people on the East Coast. So I went to Santa Barbara and I studied communications and right out of school, I, while I was in school, I also taught English as a second language. So I actually went over to Japan, Tokyo, and I was the company English teacher for Reuters, which is the British News Information Agency. Yep. Mm -hmm. That must've been fun. It was really fun. It was, it was quite a learning experience. Let me tell you that. Did you speak any Japanese or you just spoke English? I spoke very, very little Japanese, enough that I could carry on a three-minute conversation and get myself around town. But no, that's about it. How did you end up parlaying that communications degree and teaching into a job at Hewlett Packard? Well, my husband was going to law school in Northern California, and I thought, you know what, I want to work in big tech. That's the beginning of uh, the Silicon Valley. And I was there right as it was starting to take off and Hewlett yeah. uh, Packard company. So I went into sales and marketing for them. And I, I loved that company. I really did. How long did you work there and what did you do? 
I worked there for 10 years. I started out in the field in sales and marketing. And then when I became pregnant with my first child, I decided that I wanted to be closer to home. And so did my husband. Both of our families are from San Diego. So we moved back here and I was lucky enough to get a job in Rancho Bernardo and continued my marketing work there. Yeah, that's great because Hewlett Packard's everywhere. So that was nice. You could transfer. I did the same because we were in Chicago. We moved out to San Francisco. I just moved with Accenture. So you're the mother of five children. And at some point you decide to take time off to be home with your kids. How did you come to that decision? And at what kid number were you at? Because there's a lot of kids. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was funny. So I worked full time with um, my first child, Henry. I worked part time with my son, Charles. And then by the time I had my third baby, as much as I loved my work, it just didn't make sense economically mm-hmm. to pay, you know, for daycare and schooling and all that. And just about that time, you know, my husband was an attorney and his, his he was starting to pick up, you know, with getting, you know, higher in the company and able to uh, earn a little bit more money. And also that, that we, we were blessed to be able to afford that. So that was just, but really it just, it just, it, it was probably costing me money to go to work. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So. Your fourth child, George, was born with a rare disease called brittle bone disease and died the day he was born. But from his death came the birth of the Comfort Cove. So talk about the ride down the elevator when you were leaving the hospital. Like you said, um, he died the day he was born. And um, leaving the hospital empty-handed was one of the worst experiences of my life. And one of the reasons why is that 23 years ago, they just didn't have the same kind of sense of that they do today and protocols in place. So they had put me on the fourth floor, which was for women who were having surgeries such as, you know, hysterectomies and cancer issues and things like that. And what happened was even though you um, have given birth and you can walk out of the hospital, by law, you cannot walk out. They have to put you on a wheelchair and wheel you out. So my husband had picked up all of our stuff and my bags, my, any flowers I had, even my purse, I had absolutely nothing. And this young orderly came and brought me into the elevator. And when he brought me in, he pulled me in back, like I I was facing out. So when we got down to the third floor, which is labor and delivery, the doors opened and there is a, an orderly with a young mom with a cute little baby boy in her arms with flowers and balloons and they wheeled her in right next to me so now we're oh goodness it was so devastating to me um because i had just lost my child i was leaving i had nothing to hold nothing and i was dying inside and i was in so much pain but of course i you don't have a any uh, ill will towards somebody who's doing well, but it was just it was just the juxtaposition of my great loss and her great joy and bundle in her arms. And he was so cute. And we talked all the way down, and I kind of just got through that. And but the hardest part for me was when we got out to the elevator, then the elevator, and then they drive you out to the driveway and the um, sidewalk where you wait for your husband's or whoever your family to pick you up. And so she was out in front of me and her husband pulls up and he jumps out of the car and he's got the, the video camera and they're waving and they're so excited. And it's just, I mean, it was just great for them. But then my husband pulls up and then he sees them. He looks at me and I, it was so devastating on so many different levels. But when you see someone you love it, that's hurting, it's very, very painful. And, 
And also you feel a little bit like you failed in some way. Your body failed you. You, you were meant to come home with a brand new baby and start a brand new life with that child and something went wrong and you know there's nothing anyone could have done about it but it leaves you heartbroken and we just cried all the way home it was just terrible and you said that your arms and your heart hurt for weeks following George's death until you picked up a terracotta planter so what happened there so just to just to be clear that what happened was, you know, along, you'd expect emotional pain when you lose a child. But what was very surprising was the physical ailments you just talked about. My heart really hurt and my arms ached. And when your heart is hurting, and I I felt like I had an open wound, and the only thing that would make it feel better was for me to actually put my hand against my chest and apply pressure, much like you would if something was bleeding, right? And that would give me some, a little bit of relief. But my arms also ached and, but with the heart, like I was saying, I went to the doctor because I was concerned. I thought, geez, what's going on here? And again, I had excellent care given to me, but the doctors were not aware of what was going on. It wasn't until later that it was realized that what I was suffering was with something called broken heart syndrome or stress-induced cardiomyopathy, which is bought, brought on by acute grief. But at the time, my doctor was like, hey, Marcella, you've just had a baby. You're going to feel all kinds of strange things. And my milk was coming in and my hormones were all over the place. So I just left his office thinking, okay, this is all in my head. Not only have I just lost my baby, but I have a lost mind. But you know, all these years later, I realized that it, it really was something physically that was happening to me. But it was it was really hard to deal with, and it was painful. I just wanted to tell you too that the Taco Subo syndrome is in the, is the news a lot now. And but with the point that I want to make is that I that aching in our, my arms, moms in the lost community understand this, and we call it empty arm syndrome, and. Taco Subo syndrome has only gotten a clinical diagnosis in the last six or seven years. And this empty arm syndrome has no diagnosis at all. But just because it hasn't been given a clinical diagnosis doesn't mean it's something that doesn't exist. And so this empty arm syndrome can happen to any mother. I don't know if it happens to men too. It possibly could. I just only focused on women. But this is what is happening. Your body is literally aching to hold your child. Until you put something in your arms, that aching will not go away. So I just want to make sure that your listeners knew about broken heart syndrome, but also this empty arm syndrome. We can put links to both of those in our show notes as well. So the terracotta planter, when you picked it up, did that feel good or how did you, what was the connection there? Okay. So, um, I was at a very dark place. It was about a week after my son's funeral and I just did not want to be by myself, but I wanted to go to my son's gravesite and just kind of just stand close to him. And I just felt so far away and so disconnected. And so I called my dad and I just said, dad, would you please meet me at the gravesite? And so we met together. We'd gotten there before I had, and someone had sent this beautiful terracotta pot to the gravesite. And when I got there, my dad was like, this is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. You got to take it home with you. And I was in such a depressed state. I was like, I could care less about Mm -hmm. anything that you plant. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? I don't need anything. I don't want anything. I just want to be sad. (laughs) You know, just kind of, you know, seriously, it's just, you just, you just want to, 
you know, kind of get through it. But my dad was so insistent about me taking it home that I thought, oh my gosh, the only way I'm going to get him to be quiet now is if I take the darn pot. So I just said, okay, dad, I'll take that. And the moment that I got that into my arms, immediately that aching in my heart and in my arms went away. And the reason that I shared with you about that whole situation with my dad was that I wasn't looking for anything. I didn't even want that stupid pot, but something happened almost magically. I was like, oh, I cannot believe I've been in so much pain for several weeks. And this stupid, cold, hard thing is getting, is giving me comfort. And now I really thought I started to lose my mind. And um, I found myself not wanting to put it down and that I wanted to carry it around with me. And my sister remembers me calling her and just saying, Martina, I do not know what's going on. I have gone nutso because this... This is giving me so much comfort. And it wasn't until I started reading books. I had three children that really needed me, and they were six and four and two. Yeah. And little. Little, little. And so I realized that they needed their mom, and I decided that I was going to just expedite this grief, period. I couldn't uh -huh. take the time or couldn't stand the pain of going through it. So I decided I was going to read every hand I could get, every book I could get my hand on, excuse me, so that I could fast forward and just learn everything I needed. Now, I finally realized that there's no way that you can speed up grief. And yep. it's, mm -hmm, it's unique to every single person. Some people never fully get over it. And I don't think you ever, you never get over losing a child. That's something that stays with you forever. But the acuteness of it can, can dissipate, especially if you work on it and you process it. But what I did find out was that in all these books that I was reading, that it can be a common phenomenon that women who lose a child seek weighted objects to carry around and that that gives oh, them comfort. And I thought, yeah, isn't that interesting? And I thought the first thing I read about, I read about three different women. The first woman carried around a five pound sack of flour. The second woman picked up a, a pillow, but she thought, you know, this isn't, this isn't heavy enough. So she wrapped rope around it to give it more substance and heft. And the last thing that I read about was I read about a woman. It was her first baby. She had just had all of her baby showers and she was nesting and fixing up her nursery for her baby and was so excited. And unfortunately she went into labor early and um, she ended up delivering um, a preemie baby. And, you know, 20 something years ago, that baby probably could live today. But back then they didn't have the technology uh, know-how and the baby ended up dying. And when she came home, she came up, went up to the baby's nursery, looked around at all of her beautiful things and left and went to the grocery store and came back with a pineapple, the exact length and weight of her baby. She took it into the nursery and she went and sat on the rocking chair, brand new rocking chair, and picked up one of the baby blankets that had been given to her as a gift, wrapped the pineapple up in the baby blanket and sat in that rocking chair. Wow. And rocked it. Yeah. Wow. I know. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I was someone and I walked in on this woman who had just lost a baby and she's sitting there rocking a pineapple, I, I think we'd all think, oh my gosh, we've got to call someone. This woman is losing yeah. it completely. But when I read that, having experienced it myself, I thought, this woman is not crazy. This woman is the opposite of crazy. This woman is trying to find a way 
to get herself out of this pain. And she's trying to solve her problem, right? Exactly, Liz. And it was a crazy way to do it, but it did help her. And I thought, you know what? If it's happening to me and it's happening to all these other women, we have got to get something to these women and we've got to get to them before they leave the hospital. Making that leaving the hospital without your child is one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do. So at the time, we had just had the funeral and everyone wants to know how they can help and what they can do. And so I wanted to give people a task. And I just said, hey, you know what, why don't you bring a stuffed animal and we'll donate at Children's Hospital who helped me when, with my diagnosis and with my baby and everything. So everyone brought stuffed animals. So in my living room right there, I had a, a, a hundred different stuffed animals and I had, you know, uh, teddy bears and giraffes and kittens and, you know, and then it was at the height of beanie babies. Do you remember yep. beanie oh, babies, Of course. Liz? We had hundreds of them. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So it was a total craze. And I looked over and I thought, gosh, a beanie baby, it's weighted. Huh. And then it just dawned on me like, hey, what if we created a really, like a heavy teddy bear that could be given to people. And one of the things that I liked about that, Liz, was that I wanted it to be something that if someone walked in and saw, they would not know the therapeutic value it had to that woman. So if she wanted to take that teddy bear and wrap it in a baby blanket that she had attended for her child, and while she was alone in her house, and she wanted to rock it or sing to it or whatever she needed to do, that nobody else would know, that that would be a private thing. And it's, right. not, it's not uncommon for a grown woman to have, you know, a teddy bear, right? I mean, we right. all have right. them. And so, um, so anyhow, that's where I got the idea. I just felt inspired at that moment. And I thought, you know, I just really didn't feel inspired to try to make a difference and try to make that teddy bear for other, for other women that would unfortunately suffer like I did. So you told me you made a prototype at like a Build-A-Bear and then you started trying to take them out to, was it originally to hospitals or hospice or where did you start? Yeah. Well, I started at hospice and this was a, a precursor to build a bear workshop. And I went over there and like I said, beanie babies were kind of a craze. So when I went in and I talked to the, it was a guy, actually a manager, a really nice kid. And he said, you know, I, I made a beanie baby type bear for my grandma. And so what I did was I filled it with split peas. I think that if you did that and we got a normal size bear, um, why don't you come after work and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll work on this together. And I was just like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And so I went to the grocery store and I bought every single split pea that ever existed. <laughs> To make for different weights, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, for different yeah. weights. And he and I kind of tinkered with it. And my son weighed six pounds, five ounces. But when I filled the teddy bear with six pounds, five ounces of split peas, it has an illusion to it. And it felt like it weighed about 13 pounds. And that's, mm. be that's because it's Just bulky. Un mm -hmm. yeah. And it was unsupported weight. So you know how heavy that is when something doesn't right. have any give to it. So it just felt really awkward. And then we made one and it was too small. It felt too light. And then we came to a, a weight that we felt felt like you were holding about seven or eight pounds, which is the average weight of a baby now. And it just felt really good in our arms. And the way it was, we made it too with stuffing and everything, the bottom was very heavy and it felt just like when you're holding a baby, you know how their little mm -hmm. bottoms kind of rest on yeah, your arm? Yeah, their butts have some weight, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So it kind of mimicked that. So I, I used to make them by hand. And so I made the first prototype. Um, it was kind of a nappy bear. It wasn't really soft or anything. But it had that heft. And I put a purple ribbon on it because I thought I can't afford to make 
bears for girls and bears for boys. One would right. be pink, one would be blue. So I thought, you know what? If you combine pink, which is red, and blue together, you get purple. And that's mm-hmm. a gender neutral color. I thought, well, so I made one with a purple bow. And then I wrote a letter to the moms that would be receiving this cub and just letting them know that they're not alone. And I called them, I said, dear fellow mom. And I wrote the letter to them to let them know that some people, when they lose a child, especially if it's their first child, they wonder, am I a mother or not? So I wanted to let them know that they are a mother. And and then I just said, I hope it will bring a little bit of comfort to your arms. And I know that no gift can be given or nothing can be said or a gift given that could take away the deep pain you might be feeling. But just here's just a little something from one mother to the next. And how many did you make to start? Oh, gosh. I started off with just like a half a dozen. Uh, got it. Okay. And then I went to the hospitals and said where I delivered. And I said, I made this. What do you think? And the social worker there said, oh my gosh, I think this is great. Can you make six more of them? And I was like, okay. And then I brought them to hospice and they said the same thing. Can you make six more or a dozen more? I can't remember. But it got so much that I had to enlist my girlfriends. And so we would make assembly lines and we'd fill them with split peas and then we'd stuff them and then I'd handwrite each note and we'd put the bows on. And it just got bigger and bigger as time went on and people really responded to it. But not initially, I was going to tell you. And this is not long after George has passed away. Isn't that true? I came up with the idea a week after his funeral, so shortly That's after unreal. he had passed. But I, I, it took me a while to kind of figure things out. And I, quite frankly, pick myself up off the floor. I was in such a devastated state. But I really, I really wanted to do something. And it was the most horrible thing that happened in my life. And I thought, if I could just make that road and that burden a little lighter for one other person, that would mean so much to me because I'm just one person. I was actually met with a lot of resistance at first. Yeah, you said to me that people kind of thought you were a little bit of wacky. So talk about that. <laughs> and I was a little afraid too because nothing like this existed yeah. you know, 23 years ago. Really, And didn't. people didn't recognize it as a, as a real problem either, right? Kind of still all in your head. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. And there was also that, you know, especially from more male doctors than female doctors. I don't know what that's all about, but I think that there's something about a woman's heart after giving birth or a woman's heart in general, much more yeah. compassionate. I think, you know, that's not true of everybody, but that's a lot of that. But a lot of male doctors was what I got a lot of resistance from was like, okay, what, well, is there any research behind this? And just like I was <laughs> I saying about it, that right. whole, you know, that whole thing about- Show me the Lancet study of, you know, exactly. 5,000 patients, and, right. And it's like, uh, no, I don't have data for you, but I can tell you I'm in support groups and this is happening to so many women and I'm reading about this and it's like, that's just not good enough. And then the other thing is that there was a fear on my part too, that a woman had just had the most significant loss in her life and you're trying to give her a teddy bear. Are you trying to replace this baby? What are you doing? And and, and I'd get that and I, and I would get that response and I was like, well, No. And all these years later, I have a very different response to that. Well, first of all, when the Comfort Cab came out, it was then copied the world over and it was, it, 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 it proved itself, right? Just by the fact that so many women wanted something to hold before they left the hospital. And so it, it has been now flourished all over the place and, and, and any kind of like loss, um, there's a lot of different walks to raise money for different infant loss things. And 
I just read somewhere that they were saying, okay, so we show up for the walks and we all have our bears and we have our pictures. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, they have their bears. That started with George. Even though other people have copied it, it started with George. My point now is that when I speak all these years later, and also what I felt but didn't have enough confidence to say is, listen, I'm a mother who lost a child myself. And of course, I know this is not a replacement for their baby. And the other thing that I grew confident in is the fact that there is a mutual respect. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your orientation or anything is. There is a bond between two mothers who have lost a child. I, I can imagine. Right. And and so the fact that this came from a mother who has experienced this, this is not from a company or, you know, uh, just somebody who's trying to sell something. This is this is from this is from the pain of another mother. And even if they weren't interested, I think that they would respect that another woman was trying to help another another woman. And that's proven to be the case that it is very well, well received. And the number one thing that we hear from people is that it made them know they were not alone. Because when this happens to you, you feel so isolated and, and it's so much pain. You can't imagine that anyone would know what that's like. You and your husband, Matt, have funded the Comfort, or at least initially funded Comfort Cove for many years in honor of George. And I love how you guys thought about it. So tell us a little bit about your initial funding approach. Okay, well, so, and I know you're a mom too, so. I know, I was going to say, every parent will relate uh, to this Totally, okay, right. I think, you know, know about how terrible that ride home was with my husband and I. I just said, Matt, I don't want any woman to ever have to leave the hospital empty-handed the way we did. And so I just said, you know, we have three other kids. They are so expensive. And as you know, as a parent, and so what if we did a little George fund? What if we put the money that we would put aside for like diapers and formula and onesies and as they grow, you know, there's sneakers and toys and bikes and school education. And we use that money to create the cub and to distribute the cub. And he, of course, was on board with that. And so that's what we did. We had a little George fund, and that's the money that we used. And we, we self-funded the or- program for 10 years. And when we started, the internet was not a household uh, item, for sure. And so we had 1-800 numbers. Remember those? 1-800? Mm-hmm, so we of had- course, yeah. <laughs> so we had a little hotline that if anyone in the United States, because I got a little bit of press about what I was doing and such, and it did go nationally. So we actually had people from across the United States and Canada reach out to us saying that they had lost a child and could they please get a cub too? And the answer was yes, of course. So Matt and I paid for them to be shipped out, built and sent to these women um, all across America. But after 10 years of doing this, unfortunately, we had that economic crash in 2008. And that affected our whole nation and it affected us personally too. And um, we simply didn't have that extra income to provide this service. And I was brokenhearted and so was my husband. Yeah, and we'll pivot to what happened there. But I just want to point out, if I have my numbers correctly, that at the 10-year mark, you'd given away 8,000 comfort cups. Yeah, close. I mean, that's just incredible. I know. Incredible. I, and what a what a tribute to George as well. Oh, thank you so much. That 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 meant so much to me cuz like I said to you, I wished I could meet help one other woman. The fact to know that there has been 8,000 people out there, families 
that have been affected. And, and I have to tell you that we conservatively estimate that the cub gets held by at least three people um, in the family. It, it's usually the mom and the partner, the mom and the father, the mom and, and if they're siblings or cousins and not to forget the grandparents. So it's closer to five or six, really. But we just say three people will benefit from that. And so, yeah, so that was actually more like 24,000 people gotten some relief. And I'm proud to tell you that today, or I'm happy to tell you today that we've given away over 25,000 cubs. And so we estimate that that has helped at least 75,000 people, which is very, very hard to comprehend, actually. That's unbelievable. Isn't that crazy? That's what a third act that is. So I'll speed through this because you said, you know, you're talking about the financial crisis. So the San Diego hospice takes it over for a while. And then it lasted for so long. But you eventually got it back and you turned it into a 501c3, so a nonprofit, which you've got donors for and you're back at it and, and still going. So, but you were telling me too that there's multiple, people are using the Comfort Cubs for other things, not just for grieving after a child's loss. What else have they been using them for? Okay, so when we first started, as you know, for parents who lose a child, but one of the first meetings that I ever had in San Diego, I was speaking to all the hospitals, explaining the Comfort Cub and um, handing them out, and I had a woman in the back raise her hand, and she said, hi, um, I have an idea for your cubs, but the baby doesn't die. And I thought, well, gosh, what do, what do you mean? And she said, I'm with Catholic Charities, and we help moms give their babies up for adoption. I would not have thought of that because I was so focused on this great need with moms. But I was like, you're absolutely right. And just from there, it kind of grew. And then NICU nurses said, you know, we also have an application where the child's not going to die. But we found out that it is very trauma-filled for a parent whose baby is sick and has to stay in the NICU. 99% of those babies get better and go home, right? But the fact that those families, those mothers and husbands have to leave the hospital without their child. Yeah, go home and sleep and go back. It's, you know, I have friends who've had that happen. It's really hard. Yeah. Well, there's studies that have just come out that show that it, you actually can get PTSD from that. So if, if you could hold the comfort cub, while you're missing your child, while you're at home in bed at night, it really does make a difference. And then that fills that void and then you go back and you're with your baby. But then so for the loss of, you know, miscarriage, sudden infant death, loss of a spouse, loss of a family member, or so organ donor families. And also lately we've been having people who contact us for the loss of a pet you know, a lot more people, um, especially young people, are, are holding off on having children, and they will get a pet together. And when that pet dies, it's, it's a trauma for them, for sure. So then we, we have three programs now. We have a loss program, we have a trauma relief program, and then we have life-changing events. So in trauma, that would be like foster children, victims of post-traumatic stress, children who have been abused, children who have been neglected, victims yeah. of natural disasters, emergencies, unfortunately, mass shootings, we've been involved with that. And then life-changing events like those that are, uh, you know, giving up a child for adoption, children that have special needs, family deployment, patients with dementia, anyone who's suffering a loss of any kind. We all can relate to loss in one way or another. The weighted comfort of the cub has that comforting impact on everybody. So you talked about it at the beginning that eventually you find out that what you were experiencing after George's death has a name for it, the 
stress-induced cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome. How was that discovery made? And did you feel vindicated finally? Like, yes, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? I still give I give talks today and you know how we've branched out. Well, I talked to a lot of different people and um, I just was out talking to a group of um, trauma intervention volunteers. And almost to every time I speak, I have somebody in the audience come up to me afterwards and say, you know what? When my mom died, I got this really bad pain or, you know, when this happened and I just thought I was going crazy. Thank you for telling me this is a real thing. So yeah, it's, it's called Takotsubo syndrome. It was discovered in Japan in the nineties. And it was when a group of women, and these were middle-aged women were coming into these Japanese doctors and saying, well, with all the signs of a heart attack, their hearts were in pain, the palpitations, they couldn't get a full breath. And, and then they'd, you know, do an x-ray or whatever, a, a CT or something. And then they'd, they'd find out that they couldn't, you know, necessarily find heart disease or anything. But what they found out with all these women had in common was that they had just all experienced the death of their lifetime mate. These are people that have been married for 45, 50, 60, 75 years. And it's that acute grief. And so what they saw too on the scan was that the left ventricle, which is the part that's most in charge of pumping your blood, it enlarges. And this can be dangerous. And um, it enlarges and it causes a stunning of your heart. But because you don't have um, heart disease, your heart continues to beat. But that's why there's pain that is left because you, your, oh. your heart just experienced something physical. You're heartbroken. You're heart, yeah. absolutely heartbroken, yeah. And so anyhow, when they looked at this, the left ventricle, and the sh it took on a shape of a an object that the Japanese people are very familiar with. And you know how they like sushi and eating fish and all that stuff. Well, yeah. they love octopus. And octopus's name in Japanese is taco. Subo is bowl so or trap. And so when they looked at this, they, the shape of the heart, stretched into something that looked like an octopus trap. So they, and I, and I say this because it would be as though an American doctor was looking at the shape of a heart and let's just say it took on the shape of a guitar because that's a very distinct shape. Well, yeah. they looked at it and they said, oh, that looks like an octopus trap. So we're going to call it octopus trap syndrome. That's what they call it. It's Takosubo syndrome. I don't think I'd know an octopus trap if it bit me on the head. So yeah, exactly. But I hear what you're saying because it's in Japan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just the thing is, is that what it has is it has a very large, a very, very small opening and a very large area. So they put a piece of fish in the back of the, uh, the back of the pot. The octopus goes in head first, eats his little thing. And then when he comes out, his tentacles are, are all over and he can't get himself, he can't get himself back out. And that's how he's trapped. Yeah. So I wanted to tell you why and what we didn't realize 20 years ago. I mean, I just knew that that weight in my arms felt good, but it wasn't until, oh gosh, probably 15 years ago or so that we realized that there's something called deep touch pressure. And it's when you hold something that's weighted and you hold it against your chest or your body. There's all these, all these things now that are used for weighted comfort, like Everybody, most people know about weighted blankets, right? Mm -hmm. And and yep. and vests for dogs when they get frightened and things like that. It's deep touch pressure, and it when when you have pressure against your body, and again, it doesn't have to be soft and furry. It could be cold and hard, like that terracotta pot, but it causes your brain to release 
dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. And these are all your happy hormones. These are the hormones that help you to feel better. And it causes a physiological change in your body. It actually causes your heart rate to slow down. It causes your breathing to slow down. And it gives you an overall sense of calm and peace. And so that's when we recognize that science. That's when we realize we could go out and use this in different ways, like with the police department and all those other places I was telling you about. That's great. That's great. What do you have planned for the future of Comfort Cub? Okay. So one of the things that happened, as you know, in the last two years, and we hadn't, nobody expected a pandemic, you know, worldwide, you know, COVID-19 craziness. So we actually got a lot of requests for Comfort Cubs during this time. And we just pivoted just like everyone else. It was like, oh my gosh, I don't care who's hurting. Our mission is to help to uh, bring healing to any broken heart as a law, as a, a result of a significant loss or trauma. And yep. so we don't care what it is or what got you there. We just want to help. And, um, COVID was huge in the fact that so many people felt isolated and alone and, you know, grandparents that couldn't hug their grandchildren, you know, they had a cub to hold instead when they were feeling sad. And, and then just, just overall, unfortunately, there's been so much increase in, Uh, mental health issues. So when you ask me about the future of the Comfort Cup, we will always help mothers who lose a child. We will always help people who are in pain. But right now we have recognized that there is a huge need for mental health issues. And particularly with our children, with younger people, those kids that have not been able to go to school for the last couple of years. And the rate of depression and anxiety and unfortunately suicide rate has grown 60%. And to us, that's devastating and terrible. And so now we've started to work with the counselors in um, the San Diego school systems and at different school systems throughout America to reach those kids. So I'm very proud about that. And I'm very happy that we're going to continue to do working in, in the mental health area. That's fantastic. So I almost titled this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, because I feel like I'm not done yet. So what aren't you done with yet? (laughs) Okay, so what I'm not done with yet is I am not done with trying to bring people a little bit of comfort in this hurting world. And I'm not done trying to find more people to help either. So Liz, if you have any new avenues, or if any of your listeners out there have new avenues where they think the Comfort Cup could help, please contact us because we would love to be able to do that. Marcella, it's just been so delightful to talk to you and to hear your story of of the way you've honored your son, George, who would be the 23 this year with with Comfort Cub. We've got your LinkedIn. We will put the link to the Comfort Cub. Where else could we find you online? You can find us online at www.thecomfortcub. And everyone thinks it's club. C-L-U-B, but it's the Comfort Cub, C-U-B, like baby bear, and then .org, which indicates that we are a nonprofit. And so we will put that link in there as well as a link to Takosobu Syndrome. Syndrome, yep. Takosobu Syndrome and to Empty Arms Syndrome. And for people who are listening, you take donations as well, right? So the Comfort Cub is always, always available for free to someone who has experienced a trauma themselves. And they just have to go to our website. And at the very top of the website, it says apply for a comfort cub. I just wanted people to be aware though, that if you know someone who's hurting, we do sell the cubs also. 
basically for our cost to everyone and to hospitals. And with just that little tiny bit of profit that we make, we just turn it right back into getting Comfort Cubs out for free to people. So 25,000 bears given away for free, right? Right. And um, without a charge and more to come. And uh, as you mentioned, mental health with kids right now is such a huge thing. So thank you so much for being on the show and for all the great work you're doing. Oh, Liz, thank you. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.